0: It's five o'clock on Saturday. Regular crowd shuffles in. It's a pretty big crowd for a Saturday. And the manager gives me a smile. Because they know that it's me they've been coming to see. They forget about life for a while. Now, John is a real estate novelist, never had time for a wife. Mog a Davy, who's still in the Navy, and probably will be for life. The waitress are practicing politics while the businessmen slowly get stoned. They're sharing a drink they call loneliness. But it's better than drinking alone. That's a terrible song, Billy Joel people say he's bad. The songs are undeniably catchy, which means that in a certain bass way, he's good. like he's a good songwriter, and that the songs are pleasing in some way to listen to, at least a good chunk of them at least to the point that your brain wants to hear them, you know? But lyrically, he is a very insipid uh, musician. The one thing that's very interesting about his songs is how he is always the protagonist, the voice of the song. His perspective in the song is always yelling at people, uh, making demands of people, criticizing people. Uh, and is above them. Like he's either, if he's a character, like in Piano Man, he's literally too good for the people around him. They put, they sit at the bar and put bread in my jar and say, man, what are you doing here? You're literally too good for us. And then like, like moving out, my God just like a bratty teen talking about how everybody else is working for the man, but not me. Don't go changing to try to please me. Just finger wagging and, uh, and superiority. And then if he, and if there's a song that like the character is being criticized, it's always from outside, like angry young man. That's him saying, get a load of this guy. You may be right, I may be crazy, but I just may be the lunatic you're looking for. Or he's doing some very pretentious attempt to do a novelistic like character study, like Allentown, or Goodnight Saigon. But, you know songs are fun. And honestly, the chutzpah to write and then release um, We Didn't Start the Fire, once again, uh, all-encompassing narcissism. It's glorious. Uh, But the interesting thing about Joel is that Joel hit his limit of talent and then tried to exceed it which is pretty rare because musicians tend to flame out early. There's few, there are fewer like long-term success stories or who are, who get to a point where the pop format is no longer, uh, is no longer worth it. Like they've, they've exhausted all the, their, uh, all the possibilities of it from their point of view. And so then they have to try something else. If they're still, you know, Challenging themselves if they haven't checked out like Mick Jagger, who's happy to sing "Satisfaction" four hundred times a year. He tried to do uh, classical music. He tried to release uh, uh, like I think it was like actual classical music, like for for an orchestra. And, you know, no one liked it. It's like, oh, yeah, there's that's actually the limit of your ability, Billy. And I honestly think that might be why he keeps trying to kill himself with alcohol, because he has not given up his fantasy of himself as a great artist. That, like, justifies his torpor. Is said, like, look, I'm a great artist. Look, look at all the stuff I've done. But then, you know, he, he ran out of stuff to do in pop, and he tried to do some stuff in a more challenging, more complex, larger format art form, And he he was mediocre. And so what's he going to do? Stop being a celebrity? Stop being a musician? No. Just going to dial it in at uh, at Madison Square Garden and keep wrapping your Bentley around uh, trees in Long Island. Another guy who did that? uh Garth Brooks by going to the Chris Gaines thing. Uh and, and honestly, Garth Brooks's uh, status is like the most well adjusted uh, musical genius of American history is predica- is proven by the fact that he got to the edge of his talent, his ambition met his ability, and he just said, Oh okay, and then he retired. Went went to Oklahoma and hung out with Trisha Yearwood. Then he did like a comeback a few years later, a few years ago, because, you know, he missed the big crowds. But like he didn't feel like he had to be an artist anymore. Unlike Billy Joel, who's cannot get over it. So he keeps divorcing younger and younger women and and drinking more and more. Because if you're not going to come to terms with who you are after a certain point of hedonic pursuit, it's going to destroy you. You're either going to turn into a piece of jerky, uh, like the sybaritic rolling stones, or you're going to just be a big weepy drunk, like, uh, Billy Joel, uh, or you're going to keep pushing yourself, uh, until if you're good enough, you know, you don't, you, you, you find yourself, uh, satisfied, finding satisfaction in the pursuit of a deeper art. Like, the reason Kurt Gave, Cobain killed himself is because he knew he didn't have it in him. I, just like emotionally to carry on the hard work of being an artist what would be necessary to overcome the torpor of being a fucking rock star. And so, cashed his own check. What are they going to do? I mean, the answer is for these people who are that pot successful and huge, uh, just do something else or don't do anything, but you have to have a certain degree of ability to just be with yourself to, uh, to, to handle that. And, you know, people like we explode out, like our consciousness explodes out like big bang style. And especially if, you know, as we find ourselves as like in total alienation at the end of history, uh, and our – and what we're doing is we're fleeing from quiet. We're fleeing from emptiness because emptiness is the true – the one true reality is the, is the fundamental emptiness of the universe, which when confr- – if you confront that fact and you like really live with it, it makes uh, living much easier. It makes you need a lot less. But if you're escaping, if you're fleeing from that emptiness, if you're always trying to not be in a room alone with your thoughts, if you're always trying to have a earthly um, pursuit to invest emotionally in, a career, a skill, a hobby, an ability that you can pursue, Artistic, athletic, business, you can pursue. And then on top of that, personal pleasures you can pursue. You know, consumer, uh, the, the the things you can only get from from buying a giant house and having a fucking yacht and having a helicopter that goes on top of the yacht. And if you're a musician and you are living by that relationship, at some point, you have to mature. You have to let go enough to not need to distract yourself so much. But you're not getting that reinforced anywhere. If you're a success, you just keep pushing and nothing, and it all gives. There's no resistance. And so you press until you find resistance, either by indulging yourself to the point of physical annihilation or pressing yourself uh, Demanding something of yourself artistically until you hit a barrier. And of course, none of this is to blame anybody. Like if somebody has ADHD and they say, excuse me, I can't sit with my thoughts. It's literally impossible. That's because that's how we have been acculturated. We live in a world where you can't do it. Where we have been so stripped from our bodies, we have been so disembodied by engagement with a pseudo-reality of, of, of uh, mediated uh, identity that we cannot be in our bodies. There's, there's a constant panic because we live in a, in a material world where we are finite beings, but our brains are separate and eternal. How are you supposed to live trying to reconcile that every moment of your life? Your brain is the world, the universe, all of time and space. You are God. Because remember, it is a soul consciousness that has no connection to any other consciousness. But our bodies are the same material as everything else. The same flesh as everything else, governed by the same laws of thermodynamics as everything else in the universe. And it is trending to death. It is trending to decay. Physical pleasure is trending towards uh, redundancy. <laughs> and so, we indulge the fantasy of immortality, which requires distracting ourselves from our actual bodies, our actual lives, our enmeshed physicality, that means we have to press the fucking pedal to the metal on making our encounters with our body purely pleasurable. Like when our body is going to be noticed, it's going to be noticed doing something fun in tasting something, feeling a a way, uh, having a a urge satisfied, a sensory experience hedonic pleasure. Otherwise, we don't want to hear from it. And that means, like, you either take command of the world's resources and try to destroy it to the extent that you can in the world of business and in, in, the, in the struggle for control of the machinery. Or if you're born lucky, but you don't have the stomach for that, you pursue the arts, I will be enmeshed in the system, I will benefit from it, but I will not directly contribute to, to the, the the carnage of it. And the thing is, that's reasonable. Why would anybody give up comforts that are all they have? And then they compensate for the fact that they're doing all this indulgence by the fact that, but I am also doing this artistic project. I'm, I'm making people happy, I am. You know, there is a social affirmation of it, and there's a combination of that artistic integrity and then the hedonic pull, and there's this push and pull between them. And the people who make it to, to old age in rock and roll, for example, have been just turned into pleasure lizards. Whether humanity has been just totally vestigial, but that means that they, you know, have to keep have to keep pursuing this this lifestyle that killed everybody else in their cohort, and that they just survived. So yeah, being a pleasure lizard is the best you can hope for, because. If you're here for a finite amount of time, life is only going to get worse over time because you're losing time on earth and your brain can't handle it and you're being panicked about that emptiness that you cannot absorb and you cannot metabolize. And the pleasures that you seek only become commonplace and become banal so that you're not even getting the pleasure out of it. The only pleasure you're getting is the pursuit of a a fantasy pleasure and the, the sadistic thrill of seeing others denied the pleasures that you have. That's the best case scenario. Turning into Donald Trump. That's the best case scenario. You're miserable, but you're comfortable and miserable. Physically comfortable and miserable. Even if it doesn't give you any joy, pleasure, uh, any comfort at all. Even that you're just screaming rat in a cage brain. Uh, you Uh, none of this has been to your benefit. None of it has actually contributed to to your happiness. This is why the libertarian idea of of the self, of people motivated by self-interest creating a good society or just society is insane because that self-interest is not our self-interest. It is our self-destruction. And our society is destroying itself precisely because everyone is pursuing that. The market only responds to people's death drive which is to say, give me momentary pleasure in the here and now in exchange for uh, oppression, immiseration, uh, uh, carbon emission, misery dealt somewhere else to someone else. And that... The, the, the That is the – we imagine capitalism as transactions, right, freely arrived at transactions. They're not freely arrived at, and the thing that makes them not freely arrived at, the coercion, is the violence done to the biome and to people that is not calculated into the cost of the transaction. And that is a negative feedback loop that undermines our ability – to uh, sustain ourselves. Meanwhile, pursuing pleasure, denying like your body, denying your connection to anything outside of yourself, pursuing just hedonic pleasure makes you miserable the more you get it. Rich people are not happy. This is the important thing. Anyone is watching The White Lotus on HBO, it's very good. This is what it's about, basically. Rich people are not happy. They are comfortable. They have these things that we connect to some degree with a basic, you know, quality of life Maslow stuff like food, shelter, uh, security. They have those things, but they're subjective subjective experience of it is of discomfort, anxiety, misery. Which they could have had if they were poor, and we wouldn't have to have a world that is choking on their fucking consumption, the excess of their of their pursuit of something that they can't have. And all and the algorithm of capital is is psychologically wrapped around that impulse. And that means Create a machinery of of surplus value creation that can be monopolized by people who need greater and greater indulgence to soothe their alienation from their bodies and from the world around them. To get to the black Jacobins, this perfectly describes the situation in Haiti. And it describes slave uh, slave social orders every, uh, in the New World everywhere. More mm-hmm. these people were able to just sit around and enjoy luxuries, with people literally being whipped within earshot. The more luxuries they needed. The difference between capitalism, the difference between if, uh, slavery and the more efficient labor uh, regime that capitalism de- developed and refined out of contact with slavery uh, is that profits under northern capitalism, as was, and, and, uh, as it was devised in the cities of England and then in, in New England, uh, reinvests profit. Certain percentage is kept for, for, for the, the capitalists, but beyond a certain amount, profit is reinvested in the company. That is where the growth comes from. That's the engine of the whole thing. Under the slave regime, and this is why slavery is a less efficient system and why once it comes into conflict, political conflict, with uh, labor capitalism, it's going to lose as the South lost. It's because that profit gets privately consumed. Nobody, you don't need to reinvest beyond a certain amount. There's only so much land you can realistically hold. There are only so many slaves you realistically need to hold it. And if it's cotton, you have very little capital investment. Uh, rice, the same thing. Sh- uh, the diff- Sugar is different. And sugar helped create sort of a uh, the closest thing that the slave ec- uh, agri- economy had to a proletariat because it was relatively capital-intensive. In- capital you had like little miniature manufacturers on plantations in order to take the sugar cane and t- turn it into the paste that could be um, stably shipped. But you had to do that on site. It couldn't just be shipped to another processing place the way that cotton could. But even then, there's a limit to how much you have to invest once you've, had a cap- create, once you've made that capital. You just have to maintain it. Because there's only so much sugar. There's only so many place things you need. What you do with the rest of it is you consume it. You sit in the you you, you either uh, go to Paris so you can have more fun in the in the temperate regions, or you if you don't have that much enough money to do that yet, you spend it all sitting sweating in your fucking uh, uh, living room, trying to find more and better wines to drink, more more silks to wear, all the while terrified of being fucking brought to justice by the people that you're exploiting to make this happen. And as our global ruling class begins to have the same relationship to us emotionally that those French planters did to their slaves, uh, you're going to see, and you are seeing, this insane explosion of consumption. Billionaires now aren't at the top unless they can go to space, They have to bid up experiences among the rich because thanks to our global village that we live in, they are as aware intellectually of the exploitation that goes into their consumption as a Haitian slave owner was to his fortune. You had fucking Bezos say in his stupid cowboy hat, thank you to all the Amazon customers and employees who paid for this. Those stakes are only made possible by the amount of money involved, by the amount of misery caused by that money, and the amount of misery that these rich freaks feel themselves and can only extinguish through consumption. And that's why we're at the end of this thing. We're now, because this is not anyone's individual choice, because these decisions are made below the level of choice by the... By the profit extraction mechanism that is carries out through the technological structure, and you know when I say technological, I just don't mean computers and the internet and fucking uh, uh, container ships and factories. I mean governments, languages, the entire human apparatus of extension of human will wrapped around one human will, the abstract human desire, abstract human. It's hedonic desire. All of technology wrapped around that spoke. And it's pulling the skin off of the earth. And so these rich people at the top who are basically along for the ride and have to spend all this money and, 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 and create all these fantasies of, of eternal power to make up for the fact that they all know at a certain level that they're not actually in charge. They have been disabused. The 20th century was one big psychic break as every class everywhere came in contact with capitalism in its final form and reckoned with what it would mean for their identities. And they fought back one way or another. And then they were accommodated into the system one way or another. And now we have a ruling class that used to have a, a, a basis of power in land that was only constrained by other humans and God, which just meant their conscience. That was power. That was power through human history. But in the European struggle for dominance, these earthly powers unearthed the demon. They dug too greedily and too deep and brought forward this machine that they wielded in battle with the other European powers to preserve their position But then, over time, saw their position overturned, saw their power evacuated, democratized into a bourgeois state structure that would carry out the will of no individual person, but also not the people, as early liberals thought they were going to do, who didn't understand what technology would do to it. Marx understood what technology was going to do to this relationship. It was going to not be on behalf of the people, human beings. It was going to be on behalf of the id of the middle class. And that has been what has driven politically the structures of liberal uh, uh, order ever since. And there was fight, strike against that. There was a fight against that. Everybody fought against that. The old ruling elite fought against it, from the fucking English Civil War to the French Revolution. They, they, they fought against it. In 1848, they fought against it. The workers or, or or the former peasants being pulled into industrial relationships, pulled into a proletariat, either pulled from an artisan class or to uh to a from the artisan class or from the peasant class, turned into a new urban proletariat who could only sell their own labor. They fought back, too, from the peasants' wars to uh, their sides within all these conflicts because, you know, they they often supported the emergent bourgeois because they were the most coordinated and, and organized and motivated. They were the progressive historical force. And they took power. They seized control the state mechanisms on behalf of a notion of democracy that, had, that was theoretically, and in their minds at that point, encompassing of some group that was beyond themselves. Some group that was composed socially. But it was never the case. There's always the individual id of the unorganized, lumpen middle class operating as independent beings without a coordination. The way that the working class was able to create coordinated mechanisms of asserting power through labor unions and political parties and through the Soviet Union the, China, the and all the uh, post-colonial uh, nationalist and communist movements. All of them failed. Wars emerged. Millions died in the fight between these three forces. And what emerged was this new social order governed by no human consciousness, no human will. And you can call it technology or you can call it capitalism. It's the same thing in the end. Because if it's just a machine, it is a machine that is programmed by people. And those people operate through structures of political and economic po- and legal power that are created by this machine, or by this social uh, formation. There's rich people, but they're essentially along for the ride. They're there to move money around. They're not there to actually enact a will. The closest thing we have to a will is the... Is the uh, Outcome of the democratic process in the form of the collective desires of the middle class, which in America, thanks to our free real estate and the fact that we could create a subject caste that was outside of the realm of pure, of full uh, political subjectivity, that middle class included a lot of the workers. Included a lot of people who were workers and had a, had a relationship to the means of production that, under Marx's orthodoxy, should have pulled them towards class consciousness. But the creation of that, the Fortis Compromise, shattered the, the, the uh, conveyor belt that led working experience to working class consciousness. Because instead of living in tenements in the packed streets of Europe, the way that Marx imagined, uh, working-class people, and that that American working-class had been like in the early 20th century, they were pulled out of those relationships and put into the gentry life of a low landowner. They were given the Yeoman dream minus subsistence, which is the important part. They have lost the subsistence that Yeoman had that gave them freedom and independence from having to sell their labor. Now they have to sell their labor, but in exchange, they get land. And they get an investment instrument that gives them the same material interests in the uh, up in the continued health of the capitalist economy that the ruling class do. And so when the crisis of the 70s happens, by this point, the working class can no longer express itself as the working class in the political realm. All you have instead are a bunch of working class people voting subjectively, as they're uh, along allegiances to a fake pseudo class of middle, of of, yo, of homeowners that had the trappings of class because, hey, honey, I am a little bit of a capitalist. I have a capital asset if I have a home. So, like, I'm not the same. I'm a still worker, but now I also am a little bit of a capitalist. So that means that that's part of my understanding of myself and my interests that I put alongside my working class identity. But as long as there is a political structure that allows me to express my class interests, my working class interests, I'll uh, vote for that. But but by the 60s, the two parties had headed off the threat of populist revolt from below, broken the back of the working class political uh, power through Taft-Hartley and and suburbanization, the carrot and stick of the Red Scare and Taft-Hartley Plus high wages and Levitt towns. So, so because the Democratic Party essentially strangles its own connection to the work, or strangles the working class co- within its coalition, replaces it with this new consumer identity, where the working class people are now. They are still part of the coalition of Democratic voters, but where they were a coherent working class project within the Democratic Party, they are now just more voters, along with the urban professionals who vote for Democrat, Democrats uh, and the southern rural types who vote for Democrats at that point. They're all just part of a coalition of individual voters who perceive themselves as capitalists because that's what's on the agenda now. Taxes and social policy. They've given up hope of control of actual production, which is the end goal of union organizing and the working class movement. The teleology and all movements need a teleology. uh, of uh, The the teleology of the socialist movement, the working class movement, uh, the labor movement is control of production. Not extracting higher wages, not getting a house in the suburbs, control of production. But Taft-Hartley, the Red Scare, had broken the back of the labor movement, made it so that it couldn't grow grow at the same speed and wouldn't have the same active, uh, ideologically committed leadership that was destroyed by the Red Scare. So... Since the Democratic Party is a bourgeois party controlled by the bourgeois, always was even during the Great the New Deal, it reassert that the uh, the bourgeois interests reassert themselves completely. They no longer have to contend with the the working class within the Democratic Party, and so politics becomes a a question of responding to social ferment that is created by uh, structures that have been deemed beyond politics, and so when the crisis of the 70s comes The answers that the working class should have been demanding. Like, okay, this is the point when capitalism has reached its full, it has exhausted its social role, its progressive historical role. But where is the working class? It's gone. It's been turned into people in the middle class, people in the, uh, who are, responding to politics through a cultural screen and caring about things along the lines of their cultural uh, conception. Because now they are middle class, which means they are consumers. Because you're either, the the, the, the dividing of the old socialist division of the world between makers and takers is, is correct. There's those at the top who eat on, uh, from the sweat of the brow of those on the bottom. That's always been and always is the case. The difference is is that the subjective experience of being in that relationship differs depending on what your job is. There are a lot of people who technically are exploited in that their surplus uh, value is taken by their employer, but who don't really feel that way because the job they do is pleasant. The job they do gives them meaning. The job they do provides a sense. It is not alienated from them. The time they spend doing it isn't fully alienated the way the time that a 19th century laborer's time at the line was fully alienated. No brain, no choices to make, no will to assert, just carrying out a mechanistic uh, act, mind-numbing. Time on life, time on Earth that you'll never get back, alienated, stripped from you. Being at the center of the fucking post-war empire, this thing made of technology that requires all these superstructures within it to function, this this, uh, architecture, this cultural civic architecture gives a lot of jobs that can provide meaning because they don't involve a lot of physical exertion unless it's met with uh, independent ability to decide what to do with their time on the job. So you need some combination of that, and that is affordable under the Fortis Compromise because all the real exploitation is being done at the end of the supply chain under the auspices of local, local bourgeois powers that are essentially clients of the United States. And even those factory jobs that the, the guys that the, the relatively alienating factory jobs uh, that the early that the, these new homeowning working class people had, they were. It was. A t, it was. Uh, you know, the alienation of it was undermined by the fact that they did have access to a home. They did have access to conveniences. Of course, it topped out, and there was a lot of alienation very quickly building up because, hey, everybody, everybody else gets to hang around in cities, drinking coffee and writing reports and. And, and, and they get to have the same lifestyle as I do, but I still got a whole, I got to still fucking press this button. And the Levittown, or uh, the uh, Lordstown strike, uh, which was part of the big labor crack-up of the 70s, uh, was a strike that expressed that reality. Uh, young guys who were brought to this new state-of-the-art facility and given good pay and benefits and, and houses struck because the work sucked. If you create a society around people sitting around having leisure, people who, who's work is not is, is alienating, are, uh, their enjoyment of that life is made less by seeing other people have better. And so they get resentful. Everybody gets resentful. That's the middle class existence, is precarity. Being stuck between, isolated, with no class, no solidarity, stuck as a pure subject of capitalism. And that is why the middle class in control of politics leads to annihilation. Because it is misery, it's this social misery that doesn't have the ease of wealth or the solidarity of poverty that wheels the machinery towards annihilative ends. Because it's just a machine of resentment, of everybody feeling resentment all the time. And the thing is, is that on the other side of that divide, the people who do get to sit around on their ass, they are feeling misery because they're seeing all the people who don't get to do what they're doing, and they're feeling guilty about it. And they feel responsible for it. And then they have to build up castles in their minds to understand uh, why it's okay that they're in this. And that involves them being better than other people. It involves them being better than the retrograde, better than the, than the, the spoiled factory workers who are still racist. So it's either guilt or resentment. In the middle class, when I say middle class, I, don't, I mean not an actual class. Homeowners, precarious homeowners. Let's put it that way. Precarious homeowners, not in the sense that they are either at risk of losing their home, or they know they have uh, kids who aren't going to be able to have homes, and whose and and that their home that they if they sell it is not going to provide for their kids or the. Uh, They see their family line decline. The thing that's wrong with the PMC discourse is because it's supposed to describe just these people. And I think that the, the, the professionality of it is beside the point. What matters is, what is motivating their politics? And the answer is it is a it is a expression of their alienation from within a system where they perceive themselves as receiving the benefits of capitalism but are still miserable and that means the pmc would make is the same thing as maga it is people in the middle section who do not have the comforts of solidarity uh, or full security and therefore power their politics through a lens of resentment and self-exculpation. Like, everyone talks about how, you know, people have pointed out, like, the Republicans have more fun because they get to transcend norms and they get to trigger the libs. But the problem with that is that it means that they have to like get genuinely upset when Colin Kaepernick kneels. That's not fun. Like these guys talk about how like they hate football now. It's like of course none of them. They all said we're going to boycott it. They still watch football, but they like it less. They have less fun watching it. But they have to to sustain their identity as 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 Republicans as as good people in their understanding of it means pissing off. Liberals, and that means being pissed off at what liberals do. It's resentment politics across the board. It doesn't matter if you're in the cities, uh, working as a graphic designer, or you're a fucking uh, adjunct professor, or you're a teacher, or you're a nurse. None of these, like, oh, are you a working classer? None of this. None of these fine, great cheese. Whether you're some sort of urban whitish worker, or you are a uh, landlord. in in Lubbock, if you're a fucking uh, beautiful boater somewhere in the hinterland, your politics are not motivated by attachment to material interest. They are motivated at base and at, at, at the level below consciousness of a desire to punish your enemy. Politics Cannot change material conditions. You believe that. If you're a fucking homeowner, you have benefited enough from the system over your life that you are committed to it ideologically, as in below consciousness. So you're not looking to rock the boat. You're not looking to change capitalism. You're looking to make the system more amenable to you. And that means, sure, in your, in your conscious mind, I'm gonna, if, you're a, if you're a PMC liberal, we want to raise up the poor, benighted minorities. But in practice, you know they're not going to rise up because of the racist whites. So what you can do, what you can root for above anything, is the racist whites to suffer. Same thing goes for the boat owners, petty bourgeois, whatever, uh, streamers, anybody who is at the Capitol, whatever. They are motivated by a desire, yes, to defend America and to be able to consume all they want and drink all the beer they want and eat all the the burgers they want and not wear masks and trigger the libs. But, once again, their ability to make that decision is going to be uh, squeezed by forces that aren't political. What they can do is they can root for the suffering of the libs. It's a pure resentment politics that is driving the system towards uh, collapse because you are talking about a situation where there is a fundamental uh, dissolution of the social uh, basis of of, uh, the fiction of the United States of America. The only question is, will there be enough uh, uh, material uh, intervention in people's treats to break their balance because right now they're happy to just post they're happy to vote for politicians and, and observe this thing through the lens of of, of, uh, of uh, the, the pure remove spectacle but if actual privation enters the period if they don't go don't, they go from actually being afraid of losing uh, like basic stuff not freedoms abstractly but actual pleasures and and, and then actually losing them, they're going to need to enact it their politics more and more, but again, that requires a larger economic crisis that I don't. I'm not smart enough to be able to predict. But like you, that's how it would happen if America cracked up. It wouldn't be a civil war, I don't think. It wouldn't be divided along those kind of lines because it really is an urban, suburban, rural conflict. It is fixed. It is the small. It is the centers of Uh, of localized power in the, the interior of the United States versus the concentrations of finance capital in the cities and the cultures that those two capital formations generate. And, like, this creates competing realities. People seem to be very – I'm kind of baffled by how much ink has been spilled talking about um, the fucking vaccine and why people won't take it and what to do about that and how to get them to take it. First of all, a lot of people aren't taking the vaccine because they don't trust – they have no trust in the system, and it's a non-ideological, non-branded distrust of the system. Uh, And that is – Absolutely understandable because if, if you have not gotten a good deal out of this thing, like you didn't get a fucking house in the suburbs out of this thing, then maybe you don't want to hear what they have to say. And like people who just don't believe it's free or believe that it's not safe. But then you've got people who are, as part of their identity, as part of their brand, have decided that they cannot, uh, they cannot be themselves if they get the vaccine. Their rejection of, of the system is very selective. Like the basic premise of capitalism, the basic premise of the United States and its structures, the Constitution, they absolutely absorb. That's what they contribute to their, their uh, happiness, That's such that they have it, and their comfort and security. But it is the use of those structures by others that renders them uh, uh, corrupt. What that means is that as things get worse, as their precarity increases, as their sense of control over their life drains, as their even ability to get all their treats under COVID gets compromised, uh, their distrust and hatred and alienation from the system uh, intensifies. And by now to them, what that system means is the cultural expression of the system, because what else could it be? That's all we have. What do we see through the looking glass? And what the alienated conservative sees, what the alienated landed homeowner and people in those in the cultural jetty created by those structures. What they believe uh, what they see rather through culture is this culturally alienating display of values that have nothing really to do with economics, no matter how much they talk about communism, goes down to identity, because this is all about individuals trying to see themselves affirmed through the cultural lens. They see an other. They see someone of a different race. They see someone of a weird gender. And they see that affirmed as above them in the Zero-sum game, winner-take-all hellscape of America. They say no, thank you. And what that means is, is that whatever they get from that apparatus, things like and, and, and when I uh, things like analysis of a vaccine, awareness of or or, or uh, the uh, the media, the the government, specifically agencies like the CDC bureaucracies. When they come together and say something is happening and assign values to things, they reflexively reverse them. They reflexively reverse it. So when science and the media and facts come together to say there's a virus that's very dangerous, they hear either there isn't a virus at all or if they can't, accept, if they can't uh, believe that anymore, the virus is not dangerous. Because it's being said by their enemies, so it cannot be true. The virus, therefore, cannot be dangerous. And then when they say, hey, here's a vaccine for that uh, virus, by the way, it's safe. That means the vaccine is dangerous. There's nothing, nothing more complex than that. What is said by... All the things, the reason it's baffling to people is because they see these institutions, the CDC, the media, uh, government, facts, science. They see these things as the expression of an independent structure that is not political, that has an objective ability to uh, differentiate itself from interests and then uh, tell people the truth, which is the liberal fantasy. And this is the end fantasy of liberals. The liberals are committed to the illusion that there is such a thing as a non-political uh, structure. The, the, the conservatives have lost that illusion. They don't believe that if they ever did. Liberals believe that these institutions are transcendent of politics in a way. So they are baffled. This is a, Why do you think that a... a um, a dangerous virus isn't, is not safe, and why do you think that a safe vaccine is dangerous? And the answer is because they think that those institutions are on your side and that you are in charge of them. And he's largely right about that. When it comes to the aesthetic showdown over culture, the people who make up these institutions are disproportionately liberals. So there's no strategy you can coordinate from within these institutions that will reach them because they are reversing the meaning as they receive it. And you wonder, why are the liberals still believing in institutions? Why are they, because of course there is a the critique of, of that argument is not reactionary. It's a heart of the socialist critique of capitalism. That there is no such thing as a non-ideological, non-partisan uh, uh, <clears throat> institution within a, within a government. Government is the uh, standing committee of the bourgeoisie. It carries out the bourgeois' will through its organs. So that means all of its structures are organized around that bourgeois will. And, the, and, the answer, and so socialists have disabused themselves of these fantasies, at least a lot of them. Some of them still hold on conservatives reactionaries have fully given up the idea that there's a non-political institution why are liberals holding on well amongst politicians amongst in, within the political class they're holding on because the fiction of independence of institutions is central to the democrats argument for themselves as a party they say we can work through these institutions to achieve these ends because our will, can be shift. Our will can be expressed. Your will can be expressed through us and then through these institutions. But, of course, it can't be. Their will is disconnected from the machine. The machine operates by the will of capital. Because now there is no working class to pressure from below. There's just a bunch of working class people who think of themselves as either homeowners or Republicans or Democrats who are, think of themselves as consumers, But they don't know that. They think their class interests, a lot of them think their class interests are still being represented, but they're not. They can't know that, though. So they have to be validated in the idea. They have to continue to validate the idea that there is an independent structure. Because if there's not, then the Democratic Party shouldn't exist. The Democratic Party is a rent-seeker in the political structure. Because it literally says, I will help you fill out these forms. If people knew that it doesn't matter what the forms say, then there's no reason to have the fucking Democrats there to fill out the goddamn forms. But for the liberal voter, uh, in large, the generalized liberal voter, someone who thinks of themselves as with it, with the people, someone, someone who thinks of themselves as vaguely progressive in some sense, why do they believe in these the independence of these institutions? It's because they can afford to. Because they, amongst the people who actually make up the party and make up its media representation and make up its uh, party apparatus that actually coordinates how it's going to run, not according elections are beside the point. The parties decide who is going to fill them, specifically the Democrats. They have to believe that these institutions work because it's their participating in them that makes it wor- that makes them worthy of being rich, makes them worthy of of benefiting from exploitation. Now there are plenty of working class people, specifically working class people of color, who vote for Democrats. Genuinely out of a desire to see their interests fulfilled, uh, their material interests fulfilled, but that's because the Republican Party, by definition, cannot allow them to see their benefit. Their their because they because a lot because black people have the closest thing to class consciousness we have in this country because of the of their relationship to the fact that they never got the deal, they never got the post war deal, they never got bought into the system by and large, of course, except I'm talking about like the center of gravity. that's the that's that's the real generator of racial disparity into the twenty first century is that they were not brought into full rights after the war. But they keep voting Democrat because they think there's some reason there's some institutional validity within these structures. and that and that by voting for them, I, I am protecting myself in some way. But the people who are uh, better off who actually staff the, the party, provide the majority of the money for the party, write about it, and our media members uh, are well off, are comfortable, and therefore are able to devote a lot of their time and energy to soothing their neurotic guilt of their wealth. Because, remember, the distinction between Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, is geographical. It is, how close are you to capitalism? The Republican worldview has been generated by landed power in this country, either in the form of uh, plantation agriculture or the financialized Fully capitalized capital portfolios of the people who followed in their footsteps, the beautiful boaters, the the franchisers, the extraction industry members, was based on intimate association with the rituals of capitalist exploitation. Uh, Northern finance capital was conceived and uh, executed by people sitting far removed from capitalism, carrying out ritualized exchanges in abstract symbols that kept the reality of capitalism at bay. And that's the very thing that allowed them to treat uh, industrial workers so terribly. I've talked about George Fitzhugh before. George Fitzhugh was a uh, a Southern theorist of slave power, a a, a slavery apologist from before the Civil War, who was the only really intellectually coherent uh, and and thoughtful person to ever argue in favor of slavery. Uh, Because he did not distinguish in his prescriptions between races he said slavery is not only good in the south it is not only good in relations between africans and the europeans it is good in all relations between men because the abstraction of capitalism allows capitalists to let the market do the violence to their workers and then not have to not feel guilty about it and therefore not have to build politics around uh, absolving their guilt around it it wasn't just that that uh, owners had a stake a literal investment in the health of their slaves it was that they had a proximity to them and that would in his mind create obligation bonds of obligation and what capitalism would do does is it dissolves bonds of obligation You are no longer obligated because it isn't you doing anything. Nobody is doing anything. Supply and demand are doing the work. So urban laborers can live in monstrous conditions of filth. Uh, All through the the, the 19th century, you saw a stunning uh, trajectory. As as America's wealth exploded after the Civil War, Americans, average Americans... uh, Life expectancy, uh, average size, general health, number of teeth in their fucking head went down. How could that happen in a nation of free people? Because it wasn't the act of a tyrant, it wasn't the act of an overlord, it was lines on a goddamn chart. And we're living at the end of that now, where our politics is completely dominated, completely dominated by this, because these are the actors. The politicians are the actors. The companies are the actors. Everyone else just gets to react, which means we don't get to create meaningful counterculture. We can't do detournement. mod. We can't do shit. We can spit into a fucking fan is all we can do. The battle between the parties is sterile. And that is why anybody who says you need to commit to one party or the other is delusional or a fucking fraud. Because there's a genuine belief that because the Democrats are, 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 are squatting on this tradition of being the party of the people that they no longer hold, therefore we can try to make the Republican Party the party of the people. Because one of them has to be the party of the people. Like, no, there hasn't been a party of the people for, you could argue, 50 fucking years. And there barely was one when, there, when we did have it. So the idea that one has to be a party of the people, that was a historical anomaly created by the Great Depression. We now live in the, in the, in the aftermath of that, where the working class has to reconstitute itself through struggle. Somebody says, if the Dems lose, that's bad. Yeah, it is, but what does that have to do with any of us? We cannot coordinate our votes enough to matter. We are all fucking remainders in these goddamn equations. When I say we, I mean everybody listening to this. Everybody reading our shit. Everybody listening to the fucking podcast. We are remainders to the political equation. So me caring about who gets in doesn't matter. Obviously, there are butterfly effects that affect every decision. But at the level of who's president, I think 2020 should have proven that this whole thing is beside the point. It is a busy box for the anxious, downwardly mobile Children of this homeowning class who aren't going to get the home and are freaking out about it. Yeah, I do keep saying the same thing over and over again. I under, I've, I've come to terms with that. What I appreciate is that I I feel like I am refining my conception of it so that I can communicate it more easily. Now, of course, that doesn't mean everybody, my God. Now, The, the whole point is that we're dealing with populations, demographic tranches, and within a demographic tranche, it's a big Venn diagram. Some people fill some part of it, some people fill other part of it, but they overlap to create a demographic tranche. And that demographic tranche is culturally anathema. To them, the Republican Party, the project of like national revanchism that they represent, the middle class revolt, the, the petty bourgeois revolt that they represent, is culturally anathema, and it's not going to not be. Some people are going to trickle over, but it's just – it can't because, like, these are deeper – like I said, these are deeper than your knowledge – these are deeper than your conscious thought of who you are and what you care about. They structure your desire. So, by and large, they are anathema to the Republicans. So it's not like they can go over there like everybody moving to New Hampshire and becoming a libertarian. The, the, The principle is the same either way. It can't work. Because the thing that defines these demographic tranches is that they are just an ex post facto description of a group of people. There is no coordination between them. They participate in culture together, but they do not meaningfully coordinate action. They just express the same preferences through voting because of their general demographic trend. Tranche. Yeah, you gonna, you won't get that tranche. Oh, you won't get one damn tranche. Getting one of them tranches, oh yeah, you're going to have a good time, I guarantee. So they can't do anything but do what they do, which is respond to things, vote, don't vote, But the the, the decisions are being made by voters, groups of voters, demographic groups of voters, whose commitments are completely different, whose whose understanding of all the words that we use to describe politics are different, have different connotative meanings. It means that they see politics differently, they respond to events differently, and it means that they are stuck in this... Uh, Hollowed. Uh, what do you call it? A holodeck. Middle class politics is a holodeck. bunch of people worrying about losing their homes, worrying about their kid not leaving the house, worried about uh, about their mortgage, but fully committed to capitalism, fully aware that the system as it exists benefits them. And see change to it as a threat to their security. And they're the ones having this argument between the Democrats and Republicans that's playing out in policy and it's playing out in culture. We can only respond to it until we build something orthogonal to it. And that is the hope that is the hope that lies at the end. Everyone has to take the black pill. It's like getting chicken pox. You have to accept that there is no hope. Because it shouldn't be about your long term interest in a future that you're going to be investing in. You have to sever that connection, you have to make your moral decisions in the present. So you take, the, you take the black pill, you still got to get up in the morning, and everybody who's decided to be a doomer that's fucking miserable, they're miserable. That is the ultimate rejoinder, is that these people are not having fun. So you reinvest, you recreate meaning out of, in my mind, the contingency of history and also the duty to leave a mark that others can follow, to leave a trail, to leave a trace in any way, and I don't just mean by posting or, or doing what I do. I mean organizing, making decisions in your day-to-day life, putting out more good than you take from it. And so you metabolize, oh, okay, this isn't real politics. Oh, that died 40 years ago. Oh, we are just rearranging deck shares truly on a titanic Where the, 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 uh, the captain has lashed the wheel to the, 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 lashed the wheel to the side, uh, has, has nailed, has nailed the door shut and shot himself. But, you know, we're still here. And if counter hegemony is the only thing that can challenge capitalism, it can be built the rudiments of it can be picked up later by other people, even if you aren't able to build it. It's liberating, exactly. There's two things you can be if you really want to stay on the treadmill. You could be a pleasure lizard, or a pain pig. And the pleasure lizards are the beautiful boaters, are the are the uh, are the villages people. Are the resentful petty bourgeois white suburbanites, and the pain pigs are the urban professional class homeowners. And if you stay in the, in, in the, on the holodeck, you're gonna you're gonna destroy yourself trying to conform to their politics. So yeah, I had for uh, yeah I talked about how is the don't be an asshole, don't be a pussy party. Those aren't very catchy slogans, and also as people pointed out, it's vaguely deri- derivative of uh, South Park, uh, or I'm sorry, of uh, Team America. Although I would contend it's different because that idea, the the tri- the the uh, the Team America thing by creating asshole as like this third category sort of allows Americans. Uh, allows Americans to like transcend uh, the, the, the the cynicism. It, it is it's the most ideological part of it. The asshole part of the trium- uh, of the triad there uh, is is it, that's the the same thing as the uh, as the sheepdog in the American sniper cosmology. It's made up. It's not a thing. It's a fantasy. It's the reactionary fantasy that goes with the institutional fantasy that the liberals have anyway, for those reasons, get rid of Don't Be an Asshole. Don't Be an Asshole Party are the pain pigs. And the uh, Don't Be a Pussy Party are the pleasure lizards. But they're all miserable. None of them are happy for a minute. Even though they get to do whatever they want for the most part. Buy whatever they want for the most part. Have whatever fun they want to have for the most part. But it is that most part that drives them insane. They're denied everything they ever wanted. And even if that's unrealistic and impossible, they're going to keep pursuing it forever. And then, as their misery increases, their desire to see their enemies punished will eclipse all other considerations in politics. Pure id versus superego. With the poor ego, the the poor people themselves being destroyed, being strangled, being broken away until all we have are these These monsters who have lost their humanity. The human part will have been broken off. When the walls go up and we get the little compounds based around these identities that we are going to call governments and they're going to have their little techno-feudal armature of of coercion, everybody inside that circle is going to be a monster. Because the real human thing that kept them connected to to a, a full human consciousness... Was the people who are on the other side of that fucking wall, who've been dissolved, and the real fear I think that a lot of people have—not everybody, but a lot of people who really invest in online politics have—and the thing that fed it, they and the reason that they are terrified of global warming and its consequences in the future is not because there's going to be a climate collapse that kills them or makes them have to live in a Mad Max world. I think they say that. I think that is actually their pleasurable fantasy. The thing they're really afraid of is ending up inside the circle and having to live as a monster in order to preserve their comfort. And I would say that I am one of those people. I am way more afraid of that than I am of the system breaking down and me having to fend for myself myself. Free of the of the shackles of uh, of precarious indulgence. So once again, I did not really talk about uh, Black Jacobins, which is fine because I didn't really finish reading it, and I said I would. So. Uh, either Friday or next week we will uh, talk about the rest of Black Jackman's. we'll see. Catholicism is Catholicism, I think, has its virtues because it does. It, it emerged from a, a a social context that involved human relationships, you know, where there was actual power in human hands, and therefore responsibility in human hands. Technology has wiped that all out, so that's why capital. And one of those technologies that wiped it out was Protestantism, which was a spiritual solvent that dissolved the bonds that had kept up the feudal order and allowed the market logic of capitalism to arise. But what that means is we can't go back to Catholicism. That is undialectical. It's got to be something else, something that is as universal as our imagined understanding of humanity is. The benefit of technological Uh, intimacy is that we do know that we're one one species now. We really do know that we're one species now. And so that means that our religious conceptions should be emerged from that awareness instead of out of the parochial fixedness of our previous pre-capitalist religious formations. We need a new one. We need a new religion. We need blockchain. We need a new religion. We need a lot of stuff. So the challenge of the moment is letting go in a time of terror because comfort, I talk about how comfort breeds neuroses, but a certain degree of comfort is necessary to prevent the emergence of deep neuroses around the fear of genuine harm and danger. Like, I don't think Buddhism works either. Buddhism is just as geographically and temporally fixed as any of these other religions. None of them are going to feel natural to people outside of certain frameworks. They're going to feel alien. That's true of all of them. going to have to be a, 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 a religious vocabulary that encompasses everybody. And that's not true of any of the, condition, the existent religions because they were all forged in fixed pre-capitalist social relationships that persisted through time and space. And that means that they, that they were instrumentalized by the ruling power of the time and have been instrumentalized by capitalism. There's a reason that the ideal spiritual life is one um, uh, is one where you don't really encounter anybody. It's either a hermit in a cave or part of a monastic order where you have self sufficiency and stability and no responsibilities or minimal uh, minimal exchanges with strangers with non intimates with people who might bring heat, might clash with you. And that's not realistic for us. And I think every religion understands most people are going to have to live with a portable version of religion. They cannot be sustained in, uh, in the frictionless ether. It has to be rugged. I think somebody says Zen Zen seems like a whole different deal because, like Zen, Zen seems to be part of that uh, tradition that says you don't actually have to withdraw. You don't have to deny yourself these emotions. You just have to process them as they occur and extinguish, uh, like their clouding of your, of your consciousness instantaneously it's just it's a very high it requires a lot of mental dexterity to do and it requires a lot of practice mm-hmm. it's in many senses easier to withhold if you can to withhold yourself Yeah, the new religion must have thrown consumerism. It must reassert an emotional value around the social at its base, which we do not have, no matter what our religion we carry around with us every day. Our calculus, our our sense of, uh, our motivator is wired towards a very narrow aperture of hedonic pursuits. Because our vocabulary has been impoverished. Because it's all been run through the machinery of capitalism and been drained of sacredness. It's been drained of meaning. All these forms are dead in our mouths. All these words. Like religion, the reason people fear theocracy is because the idea that it would be, um, it would be authoritarian. Because they imagine themselves being compelled by the state to do things. The vision of a theocracy is that you wouldn't need that because everybody would do things because they believed in them and they had a similar understanding of what the good was that they would act towards. That would be a a perfect theocracy. It also describes the condition of the state having withered away. We need new terms and new religions because when you say Christianity to people who aren't Christian, it is understood as one more identity that is an expression of a consumer preference, just like all the others. And so rule by people thinking that they're that is going to be rule of the consumer preference of those people. So, of course, it will be authoritarian. And people who aren't of that and don't like those words are going to resist it. So it becomes an obstacle. It has to emerge organically. Because to have a free society and and, and a a free technological society People have to have an internal governor of how much is too much. People have to say, no more. And that means throughout the entire structure, political leaders, business leaders, whatever you have. This is the virtue that Robespierre was trying to impose. This is a virtue that the McDonald brothers had that Ray Kroc didn't. The thing about capitalism, though, is that Ray Kroc will always beat The McDonald brothers, over time, will always win. So that means that he will take over the system. Which means you cannot have structures that can allow that to happen. That means people acceding to a limitation on their consumer ability. Hey, you don't get to buy everything you want. You don't get to hypothetically have any experience you want in order for us to redistribute things more equitably. If you perceive that only as a diminution of your freedom and identity, you will resist it and you will have to be fought and destroyed. Unless you accept it. Unless you understand, oh yes, there is a greater value than me. There is therefore enough. But people are only going to get there if systems don't exist that allow them to have that power. And that is why the early stages of revolution, by any definition, would be authoritarian. Because you have to keep people who want to consume from grabbing the reins of fucking uh, government. And they're not going to listen to you. Because they believe deeply That their freedom, that goodness, depends on them getting whatever they want. They have to be physically disabused of that notion. But over time, as distribution is equalized, as people see that there's a benefit, there's an actual benefit to participating socially, to abusing social relations with meaning, That there is something that you get in exchange for that lack of consumer choice? Oh my God, I'm not just giving up consumer choice. I'm getting all these other things. Holy shit. Then you create a system of true consensual rule. And what's going to get people to live that every day is going to be some spiritual understanding. Vocabulary. Symbols, rituals, that they wrap those beliefs, those those behaviors around, and that make them, that inform their choices as they move through the day. That currently don't exist. But the thing about that, Revolutionary element of that moment of authoritarianism is is that you, you would not have this being carried out by some fragment. You would be having this carried out by the organs of the actual working class. So there would be a social underpinning guiding the actions of everybody within this structure. And because of that, they would give up the power. Of course, this is where people say... This is ludicrous, this is uh, happy talk, this is fantasy. Never has happened. And that's true, because every revolution is tipped over to the point of, uh, has tipped away from the point of real permanent revolution. And so the regime went into self-defense mode and was no longer able to cooperate. But there's nothing else to believe in, so you might as well come to terms with it. All right. Next, next time, I promise, we'll talk about Black Jacobins.